today I'm absolutely thrilled to have with me an incredibly passionate diabetes physician and researcher, Dr. John Buse, who's professor of medicine at UNC Chapel Hill and the former president of the American Diabetes Association. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Buse. Can you go over some of your research interests and what types of things you study in diabetes? Sure. As a MD-PhD student, I looked at the immunopathophysiology of type 1 diabetes. And then as a fellow, I studied the genetics of type 2 diabetes. And in my mid-30s or so, I decided that my life would be more complete if I did clinical trials. So I spent most of my time um, doing large-scale, multi-center clinical trials, investigating new drugs and new approaches to old drugs. I also help basic scientists translate their research into clinical application, but most of my time is spent on clinical trials. Okay, great. So my first question I'm asking everyone is, let's say you have a patient on metformin who's not at gold, their A1C, their glucose is not where it should be. What's the next drug that you would prefer to add? To be honest, I don't think it matters much what I would prefer to add. I think it matters what the patient would prefer to add. And I usually offer them pretty much the six choices that the American Diabetes Association offers as second-line therapies. So insulin, sulfonylurea, DPP-4 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, SGLT2 inhibitors and thiazolidinediones. And I think the, you know, if you read the ADA, EESD guidance, I think they do a really good job of balancing the benefits and harms. If I had diabetes, you know, if, if I personally had diabetes, I would take an SGLT2 inhibitor um, or a GLP-1 receptor agonist based on the fact that they promote weight loss, uh, which is an issue for the vast majority of people with diabetes and because of their cardiovascular benefit. And frankly, if I had diabetes and had no money, I would take sulfonylurea or I would take Walmart's store brand of NPH insulin. So I, I think that cheap medicines are great. These newer medicines are, are even greater. I think that's an excellent answer to that question. I've gotten a different take on that question every time I've, I've asked it. And I think your point about absolutely, it's, it's the patient's choice about whether they want to do an injectable or cost, all of those things come into play. You just got back on the red eye from the San Diego meeting of the American Diabetes Association. Can you talk to me about some of the most interesting research that was presented there about diabetes and particular diabetes drugs? Sure. So probably the, the most well-attended session was one that presented the results of two big clinical trials, Canvas and Devote. And I think most people there, frankly, were there for the Canvas trial, which was a comparison of canagliflozin, uh, which is the generic name for Invokana, versus placebo in a double-blind study in patients largely with prior cardiovascular disease, but also including patients who only had uh, risk factors. And, you know, this was widely anticipated because of the spectacular result in the EMPA-REG study, the prior study with empagliflozin, which is the generic name for, for Jardians. So in the EMPA-REG study, there was, um, I think it was a 
13% or 14% overall reduction in the risk of heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death. But oddly, the benefit was largely in cardiovascular death, approaching 30% reduction. And there was the point estimate or the, the best estimate for the effect of stroke was actually negative, that if anything, there were more strokes in the patients that took epiglucosin. So that was kind of weird about the EMPA-REG study. Um, and a huge benefit in heart failure. The CANVAS trial, people were really looking for affirmation of those findings. I'd say generically they were there. Mm -hmm. um, so there was less of a benefit on death and more of a be benefit on stroke. And in general, not quite as definitive a result as the EMPA-REG trial, but a clear affirmation about SGLT2 inhibitors reducing cardiovascular risk and heart failure and diabetic kidney disease as well. But a couple of flies in the ointment this time, whereas the EMPA-REG study was really clean for you know, worrisome adverse effects. Here, Canvas trial, there was an increased risk of amputation and an increased risk of bone fractures. Is there any theory over why there's an increased risk of amputation? So the theories range from it's a fluke, um, <laughs> it didn't really happen, just something turned up in a clinical trial, to that these drugs really are structurally relatively different though their biological effect is quite similar to some concerns about whether there might be some specific effects on, on distal circulation um, in the feet uh, related to perhaps dehydration and unrecognized vascular disease uh, or maybe some effect on neuropathy. A lot of these patients had had prior um, issues with foot ulcers. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think we know the answer, but in my mind, you know, and I hope the pharmacy benefit managers of the world go along with this, in my mind, arguably have a cleaner performance with empagliflozin, barring some new revelations. Um, I do think that looks like the SGLT2 inhibitor choice for now. And do you think the benefit for heart failure is a purely a diuretic effect, a blood pressure effect, or is there some other mechanism that's going on? I suspect it's some other mechanism going on, okay. um, but you know we don't have proof for that. This is very interesting theory around ketone body formation. It's a, a viable hypothesis. Uh, other people feel very strongly that's not it. So again, I don't think we know what the what the mechanisms are, and frankly, I don't know that we should care that much. It is a really powerful effect with both drugs. Yeah. What about the DEVOTE trial? Steve Marceau and I were the co-PIs of the DEVOTE trial. So this is, in a way, at face value, not a very interesting study. The FDA made Novo Nordisk do a comparison of insulin degladec, which is Traceba, versus insulin glargine in the U100 formulation, that's Lantus, looking at cardiovascular endpoints. And we went to an extreme end to double-blind this study to make sure that the investigators, the patients, no one knew whether they were taking Lantus or Traceba. And patients were instructed to titrate it. For most people aiming for a fasting glucose between 72 and 90, in patients where we were particularly worried about hypoglycemia, we could use a higher target, 90 to 126. 
Many of the patients were taking bolus insulin as well. At the end of the day, they were on about 60 units of insulin. The average patient did get their blood sugars down around 100. There was no difference in, in hemoglobin A1C between the two groups. The Degladec patients ended up with a slightly lower fasting glucose. The point estimate for the hazard ratio for heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death was 0.91, so less than one. So it looks like, if anything, Degladec is associated with a lower cardiovascular risk, but the confidence interval was certainly exceeded one. So we can't say that there's a statistically significant benefit on cardiovascular death with Degladec. Certainly it is non-inferior, mm-hmm. which is really what the FDA was looking for. In prior trials, comparing Glargine to Degladec or Lantus to Traceba, it has been demonstrated that the Degladec or Traceba was associated with a lower risk of hypoglycemia and trends towards reductions in severe hypoglycemia. Here we had a lot more severe hypoglycemia because a much larger study with two years of follow-up that had been done before. And here there was overall a 40% reduction in severe hypoglycemia and about a 55% reduction in nocturnal severe hypoglycemia. Compared to glargine. Right. So uh, Degladec having less severe hypoglycemia than the tried and true glargine. So I think the implication here, again, is all things being equal, that the Degladec is associated with, with less risk for hypoglycemia from other studies, less risk for severe hypoglycemia from this study, and if anything, a lower risk of of cardiovascular events. And at the European diabetes meetings in September, we'll present a deeper dive on trying to fish out which populations seem to be at particular particular benefits and are the lower rates of severe hypoglycemia linked to the lower rates of cardiovascular right. events. Yeah. Um, so those analyses aren't complete, but they are things that have been done in the context of other trials. Degladec to Glargine is a one-to-one conversion, correct? If they're on 30 units, if you want to change someone to Degladec, you do 30, 30 units. Yes. And Degladec is a, it's a different long-acting basal insulin. The way that it is made long-acting creates a, a much longer action. So as opposed to having an action, Glargine is about 24 hours. This one is getting closer to 48 hours for its duration of action. The other advantage is they've shown that there's more flexibility in the dosing. So, you know, in an ideal world, a patient would take his insulin or her insulin every day at pretty much the same time of day. But they've done these wacky studies where they had patients vary the time of injection from 18 hours apart to 30 hours apart, back and forth, back and forth. And they actually did as well as the glargine patients taking their insulin every day. So it's been said that it allows for... Uh, you know, sort of a more forgiving basal insulin than the previous formulations that we've had. All right, well, that's great to know. What about metformin and reduced cardiovascular risk? And I also saw that there was a study of type 1 diabetes and metformin as well. Yeah, um, so there's a lot of interest in using type 2 diabetes medications in the setting of type 1 diabetes. And generically about metformin and cardiovascular risk, in epidemiologic studies, There's pretty good evidence that metformin is associated with reduced cardiovascular risk. 
In randomized clinical trials, there are small trials that have shown benefit on cardiovascular endpoints. We don't have the great big trials like we've done with these newer agents like loraglutide and empagliflozin. But that said, but these newer trials that have shown benefit of the SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists, the vast majority of patients, you know, 60, 70% or more were on metformin in any case. This most recent study was a pretty small study in patients with type 1 diabetes, and it didn't actually evaluate heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death uh, because it was small. Um, mm-hmm. To the extent that it did, there, there really was no benefit. What it did is it looked at carotid intermedial thickness, and even the primary endpoint of that study was you know, there was a trend, but no benefit, and it was really one of the, the secondary endpoints that showed a benefit. To me, it wasn't that impactful a study. But what I would say is that there's a bunch of trials that have been done with insulin in the setting of type 1 diabetes, and there is a bit of a signal that is associated with, with less weight gain and a lower insulin dose. You know, my personal experience has not been wildly positive Mm -hmm. um, for using metformin in type 1 diabetes. And I just had the discussion earlier today with one of my patients, and we decided instead, if she was interested in exploring, you know, new things, to perhaps think about using an SGLT2 inhibitor in the setting of type 1 diabetes, also not FDA approved. Also, the the big issue there is an increased risk of diabetic ketoacidosis, but some more promising data on hemoglobin A1C and weight and blood pressure than we've seen with metformin. Right, and it's and I think most patients with type one are being cared for by endocrinologists. But I think if if there are patients out there being cared for by their primary care doctor and they have type one, I I, I would send them to an endocrinologist before suggest an SGLT2, let the endocrinologist handle that part. Yeah, I mean, the big issue, and it's, you know, we did some work, uh, Duke, UNC, and Wake Forest together on these SGLT2 inhibitors and DKA, and there's just a new publication uh, from Harvard that kind of extends that observation. So the DKA, the diabetic ketoacidosis with SGLT2 inhibitors, does extend to type Two diabetes. You know, clearly, if you use it off-label in type one diabetes, the risk is much higher. But in type two diabetes, um, it's it's on the order of a few cases per thousand. But when it does occur, it is associated with a normal blood sugar. So you just have to remember if a patient feels sick and they're on an SGLT2 inhibitor, whether they have type one diabetes or type two diabetes, you have to check urine ketones or blood ketones because they can have a blood sugar of 100 and full-blown ketoacidosis that requires admission to the intensive care unit. So if you rely on glucose or blood sugar as the way of detecting DKA, you will get messed up with SGLT2 inhibitors. Is there any clue as to which patients with type 2 are more at risk for this? I know that we don't really recommend checking urine ketones and patients with type 2, but anyone that you would think about asking to do that, or is it diet-related? Is it for patients who are already ketotic on a low-carb diet? Is that a problem? Yeah, so, you know, we because it's a few cases per thousand, you know, we have a hard time pinning it down, but from the UNC Duke Wake Forest series, it is a bit more common among patients treated with insulin. 
It is a bit more common in people that were very poorly controlled when they got their SGLT2 inhibitor prescription. Mm-hmm. Um, it is more common or often it's associated with, with potential precipitating factors like binge alcohol use, so that's sort of alcohol and ketoacidosis, mm-hmm. and patients that are having something big happening in their life, so surgery, trauma, those sort of things. Infection. Infection, yeah. And my best guess is that it really is a accelerated form of starvation ketosis. Mm. So, you know, people on low-carb diets, I think, would be at particular risk. People who are very poorly controlled and may have unrecognized type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Remember, 5 to 10% of, quote, adult onset diabetes, close quotes, really is slowly evolving form of type 1 diabetes. I think the main thing is if someone has nausea, vomiting, or fatigue as a sort of persistent complaint in the setting of type 2 diabetes, you know, it's so easy to check that your analysis is not a bad idea when you're evaluating someone with nausea, vomiting, or fatigue anyway. Just remember to do the urinalysis and don't blow off the ketones in the urine if you see it. All right, any other research from the ADA last week? You know, there's so much I can't even even (laughs) think. There's a number of new developments in drugs that are more in the development pipeline, but that's probably not great interest. Well, that's still interesting, so go ahead and talk about it. You know, the next new thing in diabetes may be something called a GK activator, a glucokinase activator. So this is the rate-limiting step in glucose metabolism in the beta cell in the liver. It's actually a North Carolina company called VTV that's developing, or the one GK or one of the few GK activators that are still in development. They seem to be very well tolerated and not associated with hypoglycemia. They may be associated with a little bit of weight loss. So we may, you know, in the next five years have another class of agents. There's a company called Zafgen, Z-A-F-G-E-N in Boston, who had a compound that that was being tested in Prader-Willi syndrome. And it seemed to be very effective. So if you remember Prader-Willi congenital genetic defect associated with ravenous appetite and morbid obesity. And this drug was very effective in that setting, but there were a couple of patients that died, basically pulmonary emboli and Mm. thrombotic disease. And so the company went back to the drawing board. They think they've engineered that thrombosis problem out of this drug. I think they call it, it's only got a number, 1061. And there's great hope for that. They're really doing the early phase two trials, looking predominantly at, uh, at safety and they seem to have engineered the thrombosis out of it. You know, this is a very exciting class of molecule. And if I remember correctly, in the early studies, the A1C reduction is on the order of 2%, you know, which is huge. And is this Um, mainly due to appetite suppression and weight loss? And, yeah, uh-huh. and, uh, but, but we don't really understand of all of what this drug does, but it's 13% loss in body weight. Wow. Um, which is pretty much twice as good as any other, yeah. any other weight loss drug. So, you know, that's a very exciting, that drug's probably five plus years away. And there's a new SGLT1, SGLT2 inhibitor that's being primarily developed for for type 1 diabetes, but also for type 2 diabetes. It may have some different features. They think it's going to be associated with a lower risk of DKA is one of the major reasons for developing yet another SGLT2 inhibitor. There's a faster-acting insulin aspart, so it's, it's, you know, even faster than the current insulin formulations that we have. So a lot of 
just a lot of stuff. I have patients, when we look at their continuous glucose monitor, we can tell that they need to give their insulin not with the meal, but 15 to 30 minutes before the meal sometimes. So some patients might actually really benefit from that faster-acting aspart. Yeah, that, that's available in Europe and is under review by the FDA, so we, you know, we could have that by the end of the year. Now, I, I don't know how much time you have left because I also want you to briefly talk about the new mixed basal insulins and the GLP-1s. Maybe talk about your patch that you've developed with the scientists from NC State. And I also want to talk a little bit more about how metformin, Wellcall, and bromocryptine, new theories about how they actually might work to control glucose. Yeah, so the easy thing is I don't know much about the latter. Okay. Um, um, and, and I only have a few more minutes. So the first one was? Mixed basal insulin and okay. GLP-1s. So there's two of these that are available. One is Soliqua, which comes from Sanofi. It's a mixture of insulin glargine, which is Lantus, and a new uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist called Lixisenatide, which is really an analog of Exenatide, which was the original GLP-1 receptor agonist, the Bieta, which is delivered twice a day. So this Soliqua mixture, sometimes it's also known as Iglar-Lixi, that's the generic name, it has a very impressive portfolio of studies. It's arguably more active right when you give the injection than the, uh, than the other formulation I'm going to tell you about in a moment, but it doesn't have quite as long a tail in the GLP-1 receptor agonist piece. But basically, they, you know, you're combining two classes of drugs, so it's more effective than insulin in glucose-lowering it does so generally weight neutral as opposed to weight gain from insulin and it's generally a bit better tolerated than GLP-1 receptor agonist. So the newer version is called IDEG-Lyra, so it's a combination of insulin degladec and, and liraglutide and I've actually spent a lot more time studying it. It is remarkably effective. So they've done head-to-head -head studies versus basal insulin or GLP-1 receptor agonists, and it blows the doors off of either one with regards to glucose lowering. It actually beats or ties even the full court press, you know, multiple daily injections of insulin with regards to A1C lowering. Again, it's weight neutral as opposed to weight gain with, with insulin. If you take people that are on insulin and you switch them to this IBEG Lyra, it's associated with weight loss. The hypoglycemia rate at the same level of A1C and the same amount of insulin that's being provided, it cuts the rate of hypoglycemia in half. And that's a bit of a mystery how it does that. But in any case, just a remarkable performance of A1C lowering with low risk of hypoglycemia, much better weight profile than we expect, expect with insulin. You know, the biggest problem with it is the expense. Mm -hmm. um, and you definitely need to look into the coupons and all that kind of stuff um, um, in prescribing. And, and that's the biggest problem with half of the medications on the market now is the expense and the requirement for having really good health insurance to cover them. Yeah. That, you know, and that may change. You remember that the most expensive medicines are these SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and then these premixed formulations of basal insulin and GLP-1 receptor agonists. Benefit is so great of these newer medicines, it's going to get paid for, you know, sooner instead of later, I believe. What about the insulin patch that you developed with NC State? 
still very much a work in progress. The guy's name is Jen Gu, G-U, professor there. He's gotten so many awards, really exciting work. It works fabulously in rats and mice. We are working on starting some pig studies. You know, hopefully those will go as well. This will need a lot of fine tuning. But basically it's a, it's a chemical, you know, it's a, a chemical reaction driven by sugar in the blood that causes insulin to be released from something that otherwise looks like a Band-Aid. So, you, you know, the idea is you put on one of these Band-Aids uh, once or twice a day, and then as you eat meals, it would release insulin in proportion to the need based on the blood sugar. Um, you know, the results in mice are so spectacular, um, but, it, you know, it's just much, much easier to treat diabetes in mice uh, than it is in humans. So we're we're very enthusiastic, but we got a long way to go uh, before that's ready for prime time. It would be fantastic, though, to be able to put on a Band-Aid and, and have that work. Um, yes. Anything... One other thing I'll just mention. Yeah. Uh, the, the American Diabetes Association, you know, wants everybody's uh, donations. They have this pathway program for particularly promising investigators either from outside the diabetes field or young investigators. And they provided this woman from UC Santa Barbara, an engineer, a grant of about $2 million. And she is working on developing a patch pump that's driven similarly, largely through chemical reactions. But it will measure glucose every, every five minutes and administer insulin. And the thing is the size of a penny, adherent with some kind of glue lots of little tiny microscopic microneedles and she thinks within a few years that device very different from Zhengu's device but similar conceptually of basically working towards developing a disposable something that would just take care of your blood sugars for a day yeah i think the prognosis is fabulous uh, for the future and I, I just mentioned that you know the currently available insulin pump the medtronic 670g connected to a sensor with the automatically delivered basal insulin rate is a major advance. I mean, it's not, it doesn't fix diabetes, but it's a major advance for patients with type 1 diabetes. Right. And I think the problem is when you have type 1, you have to think like a pancreas all the time. And this, this new pump takes some of that work away from, from the patient. Yeah. Well, I need to run. I'm Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'll let you know when we publish it. All right. Or if we need to do something else later, just let me know. Okay, great. Have a good day and a good weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Buse reports grants, non-financial support, and or other support from Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, Medtronic Minimed, VTV, and Sanofi. Thank you for joining us. This has been another podcast of Healthy Bites, a podcast supported by Duke Well and the Duke Population Health Management 